the reference you had this morning to Hebrews. But I'm just so impressed that the Lord would have us go to that passage. And all week long it's been brewing there in my heart. I've been praying over the Scripture and reading it all night last night. It was like I was dreaming the message. Like God was just stirring my heart. Today I believe what I am about to say has a prophetic meaning to it. After our long, long journey, we're coming to the point of a new day. But the whole world is coming to the point of a new day. Perhaps you've seen it, you've noticed it. It's very similar to the day in which this book, Hebrews, was written. A day of trial and testing. And so I want you to listen today uh, with the idea of being prodded forward. Now, there's a lot to be said about the Bible. We always think of church leaders usually focus on the pastor, and we're focusing on the pastor now. But I have a feeling our pastors, from what I've heard, brings us to us more ministry than just pastoral care. If he is God's man, he's going to see to it that we enjoy the full range of ministry that Jesus brought to the earth. Sometimes the Pentecostals call this a five-fold ministry. I think that's a misunderstanding. We like to boast, I'm a pastor, I'm an evangelist, I'm a prophet, I'm this, I'm that, you know. These were not meant to be uh, offices. The ministries God gave to the church were ministries of gifting for caring for the flock of God. And if I were to organize the church and start it all over again, I would have these departments in it. Department of Evangelism. The Department of Teaching, Education. The Department of pastor, pastoring and care for. The department of prophecy, prophets, those who are dealing with social issues of the day. And I would have the department of sending out, which is really apostolic, means to send forth. And I think we have that in our minds, but we don't realize so much how biblical it is that every healthy church has an emphasis on evangelism. But it's not all evangelism. Every healthy church has a ministry of, of, of caring, of teaching, and instruction, and developing people in, mentally and spiritually in the faith. Every healthy church has a department of care, a, a business of caring for people and bringing them together and cultivating fellowship and cultivating life. Every healthy church has a prophetic element in it. Those who see uh, clearly how the word applies to us in this now moment of time. And then there is the church as its mission department, which is the people who are concerned about sending out and starting new fellowships, starting new mission works, cultivating around the world and everywhere they go, new life in communities. Well, a prophet is sometimes misunderstood. Prophets have three things, and I hope you'll write these down because I think they have significance. 
A prophet deals with truth, deals with the times, and deals with the trends. The truth, the times, the trends. If we stop and think for a moment about our, uh, our place where we are in time, the world needs the truth of Christ. The world is getting so far away from truth in, in, in truth altogether that the truth of Christ is needed more than ever. The world as we know it, the political world, the historical world, the present world. We are a people, and we need to understand this, we are a people who are being led by Christ, who's taking us across a land bridge to a new country. We don't want to build in this world, and we don't want to build on a land bridge. We need to see ourselves always as going, pilgrims going to the promised land. Now, some people call that, and the world mocks us for that, Marxists for looking forward, being of so heavenly minded that we have no earthly good. Oh no, we pilgrims, as we move through this world, challenge the world to hear the truth, to follow the true one, and to go forward in developing character like the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We need the prophet today. We need the prophet's voice today. And we need as we need all these other things, the Word of God. So in that sense, I come to you this morning bringing you a little bit of commentary on the book of Hebrews. Will you pray with me? Lord, we settle down into you, abiding in you, wanting to hear from you, wanting this morning to count as we tune our hearts to hear your word, to receive from you not the words of the speaker, but the intent of the word, and to see it freshly and applicably to our personal lives. We call on you, Lord, to give us wisdom, and we submit our hearts to you. The book of Hebrews is a goldmine to the Christian life. I... uh, I got into it late in life, really into it. I'll preach from it, I've touched on texts in it, but I'd say 20 years ago or 30 years ago, so maybe that was late in life for me. I really got into this book, and I have taught seminars on it, I've taught classes on it, and I preach from it. And it comes up often in my speech, because this book has ministered to me more than, as much as any and about the Christian life. And yet, it's often passed over. It's a gold mine of nuggets and insights into the gospel. In fact, William Barclay, who uh, sometimes, uh, well, I don't agree with William Barclay on everything, but I read it, and he's ministered to me. He said that this book is well nigh a perfect description of the Christian life. So I commend the book of Hebrews to you. I hope you will study it, and I hope you will gain from it. I uh, like to start with one thing. We don't know who wrote it. Now, there will people say, I'm convinced Paul wrote it. The early church kind of put Paul's name on the book. 
Others came along and said, no, it's one of the other church fathers. And I think some have rested on the idea that it's written by Barnabas, Paul's companion. And I kind of like that, even though it's not necessary to like it. <coughs> not even necessary to know it. But the reason I like it is that Barnabas' name is son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. <coughs> if you'll note this book, this is a book of encouragement. And it's kind of lyrical. It has a flow to it like water waves, like that. Undulating. You'll read a, a passage that is just glorious. And then you come to the word, therefore. I encourage you to read the book of Hebrews to find the therefores. Then go back and read what was previous, exalted, transcendent, lyrical language, beautiful composition, describing the Christian faith and who Jesus was and who he was to us. And then you come to that word, therefore, bringing us back down to earth, where the writer admonishes us to put these things, because of this, to do this. And that's a way that why I think it's called a book of significant truth for the Christian church. Therefore, the wonderful flow of language, and then he comes to this point. Today, we're focusing on the great and final therefore. And I, uh, even though it was read to you this morning, I'm going to read you a piece of that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race set before us. The Christian life is not get there and be saved. The Christian life is get there and be changed. It's all about changing you and me in the image of Christ. Our, we are not satisfied just to be saved. We have to be satisfied only when we project the spirit and life of Christ. That's what this book is all about. Pushing on. Pushing past, enduring trial, not getting, letting discouragement stop you. Press on to the higher calling in Christ Jesus. Therefore, is the way this book ends in grand benediction. Now, when I was young, I read this book for what nuggets I could get. I had Christian light, you know. That's what young people do. They take Christian light. When we're immature and developing, we look for the nuggets that suit us, that encourage us. And that's good. Nothing wrong with that. But there are bigger nuggets here for you. No matter who you are. If you're a new Christian, you need to dig. Dig deeper. Listen harder. Pray for my answers. Inquire in the temple of God. Seek, and you will find. That is the, the mantra of the believer. And so, the nugget that I came out with at a time when I needed it was asking somebody, what kind of guidance can you give me to face this challenge? And he said, Daryl, just have faith. Just have faith. Has anybody ever said that to you? Just have faith? You know what my response was? What is faith? What does that mean? 
Well, read the Word of God and act on it, believing. So that became my mantra. And I'll tell you, the particular problem I had faced, asked that man about, the challenge lasted over a number of years, but I saw God's victory in it. It built my faith. So when somebody says, have faith, you know what that is. It's like jumping off a, off of a cliff into a stream. It's like jumping off the high diving board. You get up there and you're shaky and you're nervous and you don't know and maybe you ought to walk back and you maybe you're stupid, but the people are looking and you've already made a kind of commitment to climb that ladder and here you are. What do you do? Jump! But only in God, you're safe. Because nothing will happen to you if you put your trust in Him. That's a risk. I had a friend said, there are no risk in God. I love that. There are no risk in God. Put your trust in Him and trust Him. That's a very simplistic answer, but it's a very profound mystery when we put our faith in Him. So I, I fastened on that text. Now faith is the confidence of what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. 11.1, I think. I'm sorry. You know, I went to uh, chapter 11. It's called the faith chapter. Started studying faith once. And I got to the end of that chapter, and I stepped back, and I see, wow! Didn't look like faith did much for them. Have you read the faith chapter? Well, there were some things that were said that were faith matters. I mean, clearly they got answers. They got help. They got a word right away, temporarily. But, you know, the text says at the end that uh, those who put their trust in him, in the end, died without having seen the promise. Isn't that kind of about all of us? Here I am at the end of life, and there are a lot of promises I have prayed for that I haven't seen fulfillment of. But this one thing I know, in my heart, I know I will see him, and I will be face to face in his presence. I know that, and I depend on that, and I put my hope in it. But I don't expect every prayer I've ever prayed for to yield immediate results. This is not about temporal life. This is about the long haul of faith in life. And I can tell you there's enough temporal answers in the Christian life to feed you, to nourish you, to encourage you, but the big one is yet to come. We have a city that we are reaching for that is of God. And all the deepest yearnings and longings we have in our hearts today centrally have only one place to focus, and that is on the fulfillment that we will find when we enter into the gates of Christ's heaven and enjoy the fullness thereof. That's what Hebrews is all about, pressing toward that goal. 
last Sunday, I, uh, I'll give you a personal story. I was sitting here in worship, and uh, sometimes worship is not real to me, is it to you? And I'm saying I do it because I'm commanded to do it. I do it because God's worthy. I do it with the congregation and feast on sometimes the sheer love and joy I see in other people. But I don't always have that. I just worship because he's worthy. And I have found over time as I have worshiped because he is worthy, I have found God becoming so real, so in, so palpably present that I afraid somebody's going to look at me and think I'm odd with what's happening. But I was sitting back there last Sunday, and we were worshiping. And as we worshiped, I had an image in my mind. And you've heard me mention this before. Our son passed away a few years ago. And I miss him. Oh, God, I miss him. I'm always talking, you know, Lord, will you tell him this? Will you share that with Derek? That's just my way of communicating with God. Sometimes I miss him. And uh, I have so many pleasant memories that come back and feed me and nourish us. It's a wonderful thing to have loved someone, even if we lose them in this world. But I was sitting there and worshiping, and I had this image, a realization almost, that the closest I've ever been to anyone were moments of personal communion, not conversation, communion. You ever been with someone where you just sat, you've been talking, you've been sharing, you've been sharing experiences and sit back for a moment and everything gets quiet and that's enough? That's called communion. That's enough. Nothing more needs to be said. We've touched something here that's special. A bond between me and that other person, between other people, that is satisfying. That is the taste of heaven. One of our last visits with my son, long before we knew he was sick, was a bond like that. I was sitting there talking. What a gift we've had today. He dropped by from a conference that he goes to every year in February here in Atlanta. Just said, can I come by? We sat and talked about everything. I think we talked about everything we know about. But at any rate, then that quiet came. There was something saying, someone seemed to be saying, this is special. I sensed a contentment. I thought, wow, I can't wait to see him again. And then came the news a few months later. They had had a disease, and we prayed, and we communicated, and we talked to them more regularly, and we had all concerns about that moment. And then he died. What a disappointment it was to us. His numbers were going in the right direction. It looked like he was going to get airlifted to a clinic that could help him. And just make a long story short, it didn't work out the way we prayed. Or did it? All we prayed for, that God's purpose for his life would be realized. And he's in heaven today.
So while I was sitting back there, worshiping, his image came before me. And I entered into communion of the saints with you, with that great cloud of witnesses, with my son. I'll tell you, there was a contentment in that moment in my heart when I knew I was as close to my son as I have ever been. Not because we shared experiences, but because whenever we worship, we share the experience of our loved ones. We sharing with them in a true communion, a true harmony, a true connection. Not only did I sense him there, I sensed all of those I love and have gone before in Christ. And that's what Hebrews admonishes the church to do. He says here in the book, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so entangles. The cloud of witnesses, who is he referring to? Those ancients who had gone before in Hebrews 11 and and lived as hard as we have lived. They shed blood. They were punished. They were persecuted. They were flayed alive. They were killed. Some experienced the mighty victories of God, the relationship with God, the fulfillment of yearnings and of commands that God had given them. All of them, though, he said, died in the hope that they lived by, that God was in charge, God was there, He is with us, and He is leading us. There's nothing like knowing the living Lord, Jesus Christ. There's nothing like entering into, as we were admonished earlier, a love relationship with Jesus, of knowing that He loves us, He cares for us, He died for us, and we're going to be all right, even though this moment is not so pleasant. book of Hebrews reminds us that we are not alone in the universe in times of sorrow and need. The ancients have done it before us. There are people who have lived harder, been pain, more pain than we are, who suffered more than we are, suffered as much. Nevertheless, they know the glory of God. And they are among us, around us, surround us. We say we believe in the communion of the saints. You think that's only the people who collected here? There's a communion with the saints everywhere I go. I can pick out a saint of Christ often, just meeting him freshly in a new, strange crowd. I know in my knower that they believe like I do. Can't you? That's communion. That's a harmony of hearts. That's an invisible, mysterious, wondrous thing that we have that we can connect with those who know him, without even having them give us a single word of their confession. Communion of saints, it's real. Paul calls, I mean, not Paul, (laughs) Barnabas, whoever wrote this for the Lord, whoever was inspired by him, shares with us that we should run with perseverance. You know, there's another passage that's difficult here in uh, this, and I want to touch on it because 
I'd love to do this book with Joe. Joe, you're going to have me mouthing off a lot in your class. Joe's going to teach on this in Hebrews. Downstairs, room 104. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the word discipline. How we hate that word. The modern world hates that word. Modern society doesn't understand that word, and yet they should. I drive over here to a bank that's next to a bodybuilding shop. And I watch people come out of that place with their towels around their neck and, you know, panting and drinking water. And I think, that's discipline. That's discipline. I see and hear about athletes who punish themselves and run and and jog and, and do all these things that athletes do to build up and get in shape. That's discipline. I talk about marathon. I have a friend who had cancer uh, 15 years ago, diagnosed with cancer. He's a believer. Do you know what that sucker did? (laughs) I call him sucker because that's the way we talk to each other. He's my brother. He took up marathon running. And he's still alive today. Still alive and has seen God do glorious things in his life. Discipline. The discipline of believing, of stepping out, of giving your all to something, makes a big difference in your life. So when Paul talks about discipline, he's saying to us something simple. Count that joy, that discipline, that thing you're going through, that hard moment. God is teaching you in that. He's teaching you a reliance and giving you an opportunity to rely on Him. And when you do, you'll find out on the other side how wonderful He was doing. And you'll see more than you knew then that He has done for you. That is my story, church. Starting back with that early admonishment as a young man, have faith. The walk of faith has yielded so many rewards. And I am going to tell you honestly, there have been a lot of rewards I've missed because I didn't remember that lesson of keeping my eyes on Jesus. Well, this has ended up a lot more of a talk than I expected it to be, because the Lord clouded my mind and I moved away from my notes. That's good, as long as you get it. I'm talking to you from my heart. And I'm talking to you from the The book's heart. God's word. The heart of God's word. The heart of the writer of Hebrews. Who said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and everything, and let us run with perseverance. The race, which requires discipline, set before us, marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of, and protector of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Tough moments bring shame. Tough moments bring sadness. Tough moments bring us a sense of failure. Tough moments leave us inquiring, why me? Get off of it. Scorn that. 
That's the enemy trying to tear you apart, trying to shred your faith, trying to run you over the greater of hell. Push it away. Cast it away. Stamp your foot. Say, out you, in Jesus' name. And rally yourself around the cross and that innumerable company that worships from heaven and embrace the hope God has set before you in Jesus Christ and press on. I've got a few more minutes. The Christian life is very practical. It always is most practical thing in the world. Once you fix your eyes on Jesus, once you are getting your messages from headquarters, once you're hearing the voice of God, once you're experiencing the, com- the communion of the saints, there are practical things he calls us to do. And he says this to the Hebrew church. I'll kind of close with this, maybe. <laughs> Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy, different. You're not to be like them. Be you in Jesus. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So if you're not trying to be like Jesus, you're not trying to be different like him, you're not going to see the Lord. So be holy. Sermon. You're going to be like him. You want to be shaped in his... Uh, repent of the original sin in your life. It keeps popping up, and it does pop up. Pop up, pop up. We all have certain proclivities, tendencies, temptations that woo us away from fixing our eyes on Jesus. And at that moment, we seize that thing, and we deal with it. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. That no bitter root clings up to cause trouble and defile many. We need to help each other not to you know, cast away that bitter root that creeps in. To correct each other, as my wife does me, <laughs> as people who love me do me, as she loves me, that God loves me. Bitterness is very powerful right now in this generation. Cynicism, agnosticism, you name all the schisms and isms, there are, and you'll find out that the core of it is Satan. Because he's fanatical. He's sloganesque. He, he, he just keeps beating, keeps beating, because he has no message to offer, no hope. See it to it that no one sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance. Well, you not have you have come not to a mountain that can be touched in his. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched in his burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Speaking of Moses' mountain, if even an animal touches that mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Somebody said, what are you going to say when you get to Jesus? 
I think it was asked of Robbie Zacharias. I heard him this morning, in fact, before I came to church. What are you going to do when you see Jesus? What are you going to say? He said, I'm going to fall on my face and wait to see what he says to me. There is a trembling in the presence of this holy God always must be there. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This is where we start our walk. This is where we live our walk. This is day by day when we are obsessed with a problem that we go to him and ask him for wisdom. And he's not going to speak to you in a megaphone. He's not necessarily going to give you a dream. He may, he may not. But he will always guide you to the message. And you will know it when you hear it. It may come out of the mouth of a child. It may come out of the mouth of an unbeliever. It may come out of somewhere you know not where. But you will say, that rings true. Because in you is the Spirit of Christ saying, that's it. That's wisdom. The way we get wisdom. You have come to Zion. You and I. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. The city of the living God. Not God, dead God. You have come to thousands upon thousands in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made more perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to a better, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape who refused him, how much less Will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's also, church, the beginning of a divine love affair. And you'll know what true love is, because in him is vested the truth. The world doesn't have it. Politicians don't have it. Societies and and, uh, gimmicks don't have it. It's nowhere but in him. So I want to encourage you prophetically this morning. This is the truth. These are the times. And the trends are that we're going to see worse before we see him. So right now, live in the moment, drawing on him, seeking his face, waiting upon him and trusting him for every gain today will feed you tomorrow. If he did it yesterday, he can do it again. If he did it today, he'll do it tomorrow. He is the same God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the finisher of our faith. That's the message of Hebrews, simply boiled down. It's a message of the Word of God. It's a message that we can take to heart and it will work wonders in our love when we obey Him. Let us pray. Finish, Lord. Your work is finished. My moment is finished. Our hearing is finished. 
Now let us, O Lord, understand that you have been with us today and proclaim your name in our hearts, in our prayers, in our witness, in the street. Be as natural in you as you are in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.